This episode of Method and Madness features strange, spooky, and paranormal stories about locations in New Jersey. It also contains some disturbing content. This episode is not intended as an invitation to trespass, vandalize, or ignore any laws surrounding the locations mentioned. In other words, please be respectful. This is Method and Madness, Garden State of Fear, I'm your host, Don Gandhi. Why do so many of us seek out fear? What is it about being terrified that brings us so much enjoyment that we line up to watch horror movies, stay up late to read ghost stories, or go walking through a cemetery during a full moon? Why do some of us willingly seek out an environment that we can't control when we can't flip on the lights and have it all be over? Why would we dare visit somewhere that may actually be haunted. Every state in the U.S. has its share of urban legends, hauntings, and abandoned spots. New Jersey, while only a tad larger than 7,300 square miles, has an abundance of woods, mountains, old mansions, abandoned mental hospitals, and creepy roads and cemeteries. It's the most spooky time of the year, my favorite time of the year, so turn off the lights and join me as we take a break from true crime and dive into some truly terrifying tales from my home state, New Jersey. Stick around about halfway through the episode for an interview with a special guest. If creatures are your thing, we've got cryptids, hellhounds, big red eye. So maybe you'd be interested in a hike through the Pine Barrens, a rural area of over a million acres and home to the Jersey Devil. If you prefer a drive down a spooky road, look no further than Clinton Road or Shades of Death Road. Maybe evil forces or the cursed is more your cup of tea. Devil's Tree is an oak tree located in the Liberty Corner section of Berners Township. One of the legends is that a farmer murdered his entire family and then walked to the tree and hung himself. Other legends say it was a gathering place for the Ku Klux Klan. Supposedly, if anyone tries to take an axe to the tree's trunk, they summon the devil himself. Some say the tree prevents people from chopping it by using some kind of force. The Gates of Hell, a tunnel or passageway in Clifton, is supposedly the portal to hell. You will get arrested if you go, but legend has it that once you enter the tunnel and begin walking, you're soon in complete darkness with only a glowing skull or a creature named Red-Eyed Mike to guide you. I put the feelers out on social media to see who in New Jersey had a spooky happening experience that they'd be willing to share. One of the most talked about locations among New Jersey's fans of the spooky 
is Clinton Road, a two-lane, 10-mile-long stretch of road that's supposedly haunted in West Milford, New Jersey. It's isolated, taking drivers through a heavily wooded area with barely any houses. A night drive, favored by those that are really looking for a good fright. In 1983, it was the site where serial killer Richard Kuklinski hid the body of one of his victims, Daniel Deppner. There are several legends associated with Clinton Road, and no shortage of people submitting their experiences to the magazine and website Weird New Jersey. According to Weird New Jersey's blog, one tale is that of a dead boy whose ghost hangs out under a bridge and summons passerby to drop coins down to him. He then will return coins to you either then and there or by leaving them on the road for you to find the next day. There are different takes on the story and how the little boy came to haunt the bridge. Other tales include Satan worshippers lurking behind trees, waiting for their next human sacrifice, or UFO sightings, cannibals, apparitions appearing in the middle of the road, or witches in the woods, cackling. Here's one experience sent in from Byron T. My friends and I were obsessed with all things weird New Jersey and were always talking about taking a drive up to Clinton Road as soon as one of us got our driver's license. I was the oldest, and so when I got my license, there was only one problem. I didn't have a car. My brother, let's call him John, agreed to go with us in his car, but he insisted on driving. He didn't really get the big deal about a road in North Jersey and wasn't a weirdo like me and my friends, but I guess he figured he'd keep us out of trouble by coming along. He wasn't into any of the stories I was telling him as we stood around our kitchen counter, like floating dogs or trucks that follow behind you and then disappear into thin air. We planned to go on a Friday night. For some reason, I've always thought of that as the scariest part of the week. Well, the potential for scares anyway. Me and my two buddies got into John's car. It was a little over an hour's drive from our hometown, and we spent most of that time scaring ourselves sick with what we thought might happen, or what I guess you could say we hoped would happen. My brother was probably getting a little annoyed, but he was a sport about the whole thing. We had books and magazines and had spent lots of hours online looking up random people's experiences. Would we run into a satanic cult or see a ghost on the side of the road? Would we be chased out of there by a truck without its headlights on? We turned off Route 23 in West Milford, and I felt like I was going to pee myself from excitement. I could tell even my brother was getting a little creeped out by now, but there was something really eerie about this road at night. A stillness that was unsettling. Or maybe it was just that we'd been talking about ghosts and wishes and dead people in the woods for the past hour. My friend Nick was in the back seat, and he was definitely the most gutsy out of everyone in the car. He kept asking my brother to pull off to the side of the road so we could get out and poke around in the woods. John had been really patient with us up until that point, 
but said there was no way he was stopping the car or letting us get out. Nick kind of started whining to get John to stop. But my brother was putting his foot down and wasn't going to go trespassing no matter how much anyone begged. We knew that the remains of Cross Castle were gone, but we still wanted to see if we could find anything or just have a cool story to bring back home. There's this old furnace out in the woods that was supposed to be really creepy, but we wouldn't get to see that. Not on this trip, anyway. I admit, I was kind of okay with John not stopping. There were stories of stuff happening to people just in their cars, and once I was up there, I didn't feel like I had to get out of the car. It didn't matter because John was absolutely not going to stop. We all wanted to pull over at this one bridge to throw coins down to the ghost of the boy that supposedly died there, but that wasn't happening either. I told Nick to shut up because we knew that at one spot on Clinton Road, if you listen closely, you could hear a little boy's voice. So the windows were down, and we were trying to listen for anything. We got to the turn in the road called Dead Man's Curve, which is where it's rumored you can hear the boy's voice. We were all really freaked out, even John was, but he wasn't admitting it. We were pretty disappointed because we didn't hear anything. When we got to the northern part of Clinton Road, it started looking more residential. So John turned around and headed back toward Route 23. My brother may not have wanted to stop, but he was okay with driving slowly so we could see and hear as much as possible. We still had the windows down, and the three of us who weren't driving had our heads hanging out to see or hear something, anything. About five minutes after we turned around, it finally happened. We heard a sound coming from the woods that I can only describe as a painful laugh. Not a cackle, not a moan. A laugh that sounded like someone was being tortured and forced to laugh at the same time. We all heard it, and me and my friends got our heads back in that car so damn fast. We were half freaking out and half laughing. John decided to get the hell out of there, and even Nick didn't argue. Another mention of Clinton Road came in from an anonymous submission. My boyfriend and I went down Clinton Road around midnight a couple weeks before Halloween one year. I had my phone out the whole time taking video to watch back later. Nothing really happened while we were there, but when I got home and watched the video, the entire section when we were near Dead Man's Curve had no image at all. It was all black. It was like some force hadn't let me film that part of the road. Blairsden is a chateau-esque-style mansion located in Peapack Gladstone, New Jersey, originally built in the late 1800s for investment banker Clinton Blair. It's a 62,000-square-foot estate with 31 bedrooms. After Blair died in 1949, the house was sold to the Sisters of St. John the Baptist. According to MrLocalHistory.org, 
The nuns were looking for buyers in the 90s, and in 2002, sold it to the Foundation for Classical Architecture, and it's been in the process of restoration ever since. Blairston has a connection to Blairstown, where our most recent episode on Princess Doe was set. Clinton Blair is the grandson of Blairstown's namesake, John Inslee Blair. In the mid-1990s, tales of nuns doing unspeakable things to orphans back in the day led the curious to seek out the 550-acre estate in the hills of Somerset County. There's nothing on record that any crimes took place, but the legend is that the nuns were Satan worshippers and that Mother Superior went on a killing spree before disappearing into the woods. And so began the curious trips out to see the mansion. It got to the point where even pulling your car down the road leading to Blairsden would result in an almost immediate response from local police who would charge you with trespassing. Still, there were plenty of people who successfully made their way onto the grounds and through the ornate gates, past the mile-long driveway, of course at night, with nothing but flashlights to guide them up the hill that wraps around to the side of the house. Putting aside the legends for a moment, it's not hard to see why there's a draw to Blairsden. It's a stunning example of architecture. Large stone terraces, a front reflecting pool, busts of Roman Caesars lining the driveway, a rose garden, horse trails, and tennis courts. It's right out of a storybook or an Agatha Christie mystery. Perhaps the perfect setting to invite 10 strangers to come and stay before quietly eliminating them one by one. This story came in anonymously from one New Jersey resident who found their way onto the grounds in 2002. It's been about 20 years, but if memory serves, my friends and I went to Blairsden one night. It wasn't that far from where we lived. I remember going up a curved driveway and ending up at what would have been the side of the house. Looking up at the house, there was a second or third floor bedroom, and we saw a light go on and a shadow in the window. That was all we needed to see. We were out of there. It was only later that I found out there was a groundskeeper living in the home. Our next story is about another house in New Jersey and a terrified resident that lived there. I lived in this house until I was about 12, and there was always something weird going on. But this one thing was the most terrifying. I was in bed and my parents were across the hall in their room. I remember waking up this one night and feeling really groggy. You know that feeling when you aren't sure if you're awake or still sleeping? I heard this knocking from under my bed very faintly. I was so afraid to do anything. If I screamed or if I jumped down, would whatever was under my bed come and get me? I pulled my blankets up and tucked them under the back of my head so nothing could get to me. I lie there, listening to the faint knocking. After some time, I could barely catch my breath from being under all of these blankets, and I thought it would be better to take a flying leap out of my bed and run as fast as I could to my parents' room. I woke my dad up, and he assured me everything was okay. I crawled between him and my mom and fell asleep, feeling very safe. The next morning, I walked back into my room and screamed at the top of my lungs. 
My bed, which had always been pushed against the back wall, was now about a foot away from it. My parents tried to tell me I must have done it myself while I was half asleep, but I know, and I still know, that something else was there that night. Our next story is about the mysterious creature that is said to live in forests in North America, a bipedal ape-like creature that remains mostly elusive, except for the occasional cameo captured in blurry photographs. The most famous sighting came from Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin in Northern California. A photo still of the short motion picture they filmed is what you most likely associate with Bigfoot, an image of the creature in motion looking back at the filmmakers from behind a large overturned tree and debris. It was October 20th, 1967, and the two men said they were riding on horseback when they came across the Sasquatch, which they said was between six foot six inches tall and seven foot tall. Much about the film has been dissected over the years. Was it real? Was it a guy in a suit? The science news website, Live Science, states that there have been over 10,000 reported sightings of Bigfoot or Sasquatch in the U.S. alone. But is there any scientific evidence that they exist? I sat down with today's special guest, Mike Famelant, to discuss. He's been researching Bigfoot since one particularly creepy encounter in 2011. Admittedly, and this is brought up during our discussion, I always associated Bigfoot or Sasquatch with the Pacific Northwest. It never occurred to me that there were sightings in New Jersey. My name is Mike Famelon. I am uh, 33. I'm a Bigfoot researcher from Northwest New Jersey in Sparta. Um, I volunteer with New Jersey Search and Rescue. Uh, I'm an EMT firefighter by trade, but now doing the Bigfoot research full time. Um, and I've been doing that since like 2011. So uh, actually, a little fun fact for you, it was uh, 2011 to this day, actually. Mike was living in Florida at the time and admits that back then he wasn't much of an outdoorsman. But one day, while watching the show Finding Bigfoot, there was an invitation for viewers to come along on an expedition. Mike filled out some info online and purchased two tickets to go on the mission. He began acquiring camping gear and asked a friend to join him. I was like, Jimmy, I, I got to ask a weird question. Uh, do you want to come with me to look for Bigfoot in North Florida? And he said, oh, I've always wanted to do that. I was like, perfect. Uh, so nothing happened the, the entire trip. Everything was cool. It was like there were like 60 other people there. So, you know, walking around the woods with 60 people, I didn't know how you're going to find Bigfoot anyway. But um, it was really cool. Met a lot of really cool witnesses and people and networked and stuff. But nothing in the way of Bigfoot. Uh, until like the last night and it was, uh, it was a Sunday night and we were up watching, uh, watching a meteor shower, me and my friend, and we hear a tree knock in one direction. And that's, I, that's something that Bigfoot are, are said to do is like knock on trees. So I was like instantly, boom, I thought it was these people that put on the show or that put on the expedition because I was like, nothing happened. We paid $600, uh, and 
they're, they want us to get our, our money's worth out of it. Right. So, um, bam, we hear a tree knock about five minutes later in the complete opposite direction. And I thought, Oh, these guys are pretty good. You know, dinner and a show type of thing. Like this is all right. Um, and then, uh, we, we, nothing happens for about 15 minutes. And all of a sudden we hear come crashing through the trees, a a rock, like a fist size rock. And it, uh, lands about 15 feet or 10 feet from the campfire next to us. And I was like, this is how horror movies start. I was like, nope, I'm not doing this anymore. This is where the fun ends and the horror begins. This is how people die. My friend was like, if you want to uh, pack up all your stuff and sleep in the car, you're more than, and before he could get that sentence finished, I had my entire tent. I was running to the car. But then he talked some sense to me. He's like, Mike, Bigfoot throw rocks too. This could actually be like a legitimate Bigfoot encounter. So he finally talked talked me out of the car. And we, um, uh, over the course of the next like 10 minutes, four more of these fist-sized rocks came out of the trees and landed next to us, landed within like 10 feet of us. Um, and I'm scared. I'm petrified. I don't know what it is at this point. And my buddy's like, I'm going to throw a rock back at it. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea because either we're talking about, you know, either it's a person or a Bigfoot and that's a lose lose in my opinion. Um, so he chucks the rock back at it and I knew it wasn't a person at that exact moment because like a 20 pound laptop sized boulder came crashing through the trees and landed like five feet from us. Um, and it was at that moment in my life where it changed the the complete direction of my life, 180% like, and, and 180 degrees. And now, now this is what I do full time. So it's crazy how that was, you know, 12 years ago. Still gives me the EBGVs telling the story about it now. From there, Mike began Bigfooting in Florida and saw some instances of eye shine. Eventually, life led him back to his home state of New Jersey. He hadn't known at the time, like many of us in the Garden State, that there are Bigfoot sightings in the woods here. In fact, according to Mike, New Jersey ranks fifth on the list of sightings of Bigfoot. Sussex County, where Mike is from, has had 58 sightings, the highest east of the Mississippi. So, tired of the shows and documentaries that already existed, seemingly for clicks and ratings, Mike set out to create a different kind of show, In the Shadow of Big Red Eye. In 1972, a state park ranger uh, went on record and said uh, he saw two pairs of glowing red eyes when he was on patrol, on foot patrol at night in High Point State Park. And he went on record and the newspapers got a hold of that, whatever, and thus Big Red Eye uh, came to be Northwest New Jersey or Sussex County's Bigfoot. And uh, it's since been seen, uh, you know, red eyes have been seen all throughout the country uh, since then. And it's cool because that... Um, Bigfoot specifically wasn't uh, the name back then in 1972. It was just starting to come out as the Bigfoot name. So uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot didn't really have a, a specific name. So Big Red Eye was what he saw, and that's what uh, what it kind of came out as. Now, now we kind of correlate the two with Bigfoot, which is awesome. The benefit of researching Bigfoot has led Mike outdoors. He's learned survival skills and has grown to love nature. I was curious if expeditions occur primarily at night. So 70% of sightings happen during the day. 
Um, and I think that's just because uh, people are up during the day. So that leaves the 30% happen during the night. But I think that number is skewed greatly because there's not a lot of people out in the woods at night. Um, so to have that 30% is actually pretty high, I think. Um, but what we do on our expeditions, and everybody does expeditions a little differently. There's no right or wrong way to do expeditions. Um, but generally speaking, during the day, we go out and we look for good areas that we're um, going to be in at night uh, or, or return to that night. And during the day, we'll look for hair, footprints, uh, scat, um, anything Bigfoot DNA that we could get or anything related tree breaks or structures and stuff like that, any nests or stuff. Um, and then at night we'll revisit that area and go to check. We'll see during the day for safety. That's my number one priority on these expeditions is always everybody's safety. So we'll make sure that the path is doable at night. Um, then we'll, when we return there at night, we kind of, we'll go out, uh, to, uh, an area kind of quietly. And then, uh, depending on the area and the terrain and stuff like that, we'll do vocalizations to try to capture Bigfoot vocalizations back on our audio recording devices or try uh, on a, in a perfect scenario, lure the Bigfoot back into our base camp where we can record with our cameras uh, the, the creature. Um, so that's, that's in a nutshell how it works. Mike uses the Verizon service map to find areas that don't have cell service and his expeditions often lead him to those areas. He doesn't want that distraction. His focus is on Bigfoot. It's also a benefit in that the areas without cell service are the areas without many people around, and therefore, where more Bigfoot sightings are possible. And it's not just the sightings Mike and his team are interested in. They're out there collecting evidence. If we do get good evidence, what we do is we put it, um, we, we do the correct, uh, the correct process for collecting evidence. We put them in, you know, if it's hair or something, we put it in a paper bag. We don't put it in a plastic bag. We use gloves, tweezers, try to conserve the evidence as best we can because we find that with Bigfoot DNA, that's the biggest factor of is the cross-contamination between human DNA and the DNA that we're trying to find. So the biggest thing, and if anybody finds any Bigfoot evidence, I highly suggest that, you know, take the appropriate, you know, the appropriate, whatchamacallits, to, the, the provisions to, to, class, to handle the DNA appropriately. Um, but yeah, then we would send it off. Um, we would use the funds that we don't have to get it scientifically uh, tested and DNA analyzed. And um, historically in the past, that's come back um, Oh, your viewers won't be able to see this, but this is a little hair from uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan that came back 98.8% human, or 99.8% human, but it came back as an unknown primate. Mike then held up a small plastic bag to show me the hair found in Michigan in 2014. The subject of primates brought me to the question, in Mike's opinion, is Bigfoot the missing link? I, I think that's a really good question. And I think uh, Bigfoot uh, would be considered like if we could classify this, if we had the DNA and everything to, to be able to classify the species, I think it would be a Gigantopithecus or a Denisovan, which is uh, both ancient humans that lived alongside of modern day humans about 10,000 years ago. Um, and historically, there's nothing to say that Bigfoot didn't ride the evolution, ride, parallel our evolutionary 
journey but didn't evolve appropriately themselves like we did and uh there could still be a relic population of that species uh, left in the forest say there's a there's a 100% chance of that it occurred to me while talking with mike that i had always thought of bigfoot as one creature one sort of immortal creature that lived in the pacific northwest Mike thinks there's about 2,000 Bigfoot in the United States and that probably nine of them are in New Jersey. His most compelling evidence came from High Point State Park. We've gotten vocalizations, uh, which uh, came back. Uh, we sent them off. I did a barred owl call, and this is in High Point State Park. And I just, Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. and um, that in return got a Bigfoot call vocalization. A Bigfoot vocalized like three times, a long moaning howl. Uh, and we captured that on two different voice recorders and we heard it by five different people. So that was amazing. Uh, and we sent it off to a linguist from the military who does Bigfoot vocalization analysis on the side. And he said that because of uh, X, Y, and Z, this is outside of human vocal range and it's also no known animal. When people think of New Jersey, they may think of our airport in the industrial city of Newark, where it's hard to imagine anyone would go looking for Sasquatch. But New Jersey has nearly two million acres of forested land, hiking along the Appalachian Trail. And then there's the Pine Barrens. So I was down the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, and I took a picture of what I think could be a Bigfoot head. But it's so far away and so unclear that it's blurry. It's one of those blob squatches that everybody talks about, all those pictures that you see. And it's never going to see the light of day because it could just be a deer. Simple as that. Um, And it's so blurry, it's not even like you can't even make anything out of it. So that, you know, I think that might be something. But because it's not true evidence, that's never, unfortunately, going to be, be released out there. But this evidence that we can collaborate is, and that's going to be all uh, it's shown all in my show. We've actually found footprints along this river. We, we hike in about a mile off trail uh, up this river, and we have come across um, little baby Bigfoot footprints. And we went back uh, a couple years later, and they were a little bit bigger. We went back a couple years later, and they were a little bit bigger. And they were in the exact same spot. So uh, I think that's, you know, uh, if that was a hoax and somebody, like, people don't know where we go on expeditions. So nobody would know that we were down there. And in fact, the last time I was down there and found footprints, I went down there a day before everybody because I wanted to make sure it wasn't even any of my friends messing with me. Mike says there are no reports of Bigfoot showing aggression and believes that the night when something was throwing rocks at him and his friend in Florida it may have been a family group setting up boundaries and protecting themselves. I asked what he'd do if he came face-to-face in the woods with Bigfoot. I've been asked that a, a, a bunch of times, and I, I don't know how to respond because uh, either I would poop or pee first, one of the two, um, and then scream like a girl. Right. It would be it would be something of one of those orders in, in that 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 way. Uh, no, but uh, I don't know. To be honest, I think I would I, I would hope that I would have enough um, intuition to be able to take out my camera and take a picture of it. A selfie. Um, a selfie with Bigfoot. That would be an epic selfie. Um, but I you know I I don't know. Most Bigfoot sightings last from three to five seconds. So if I were to tell you right now to take out your phone and get a camera out in three seconds or five seconds, you wouldn't be able to do it. So, um, 
and it, it you know it depends on the sighting too if it's a road crossing sighting and i just see a fleeting glimpse of bigfoot that would be really cool but if i was came you know two feet from an eight foot nine foot tall sasquatch i don't know what i would do i'd probably try to shake its hand or get some hair or something mike is well aware of the skeptics out there but he's not deterred when asked by the outdoorsy types, well, why haven't we ever seen bones of Bigfoot while out in the woods? Mike's response is, have you ever come across a bear skeleton while out in the woods? And the response is always, no, never. He tells me that even if you don't believe in Bigfoot, that's still a belief, and that's what matters. At the end of the day, his mission is to find out what threw rocks at him in the woods in 2011. And if he does find out, he's not sure if he'd be satisfied enough and quit or keep going. I was talking with a witness in the Walk Hill River Wildlife Management Area, or National yeah, Wildlife Management Area, and um, the uh, witness, uh, some biologist, uh, had a uh, put some uh, trap lines in her backyard because she lived along a gas line. So she puts the, they put some like uh, DNA traps to try to see what kind of animals they were doing, like a bobcat study to see how many bobcats were out there. And, uh, and this is all hearsay. I didn't see any, any of the information, but uh, when they came back and collected all the things, they said like most of it came back as, as known animals, but they had like 10% of the hair came back as uh, from microscopically as unknown. And that's, that was, you know, come coming from the, from the, you know, New Jersey or the National Wildlife Service. You know, I go out on these expeditions once a month and I'm out there for four or five days, you know, at a time. And there's times where I don't get um, any activity for months that I've been out. And it's kind of like you get you get really turned off a little bit. You're like, man, why do I keep doing this? You know, there's 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 this is too much. And then you get the one vocalization that's like, oh man, that's why I'm here for, you know? And it always seems to seems to come at the right time, but I don't know. I couldn't sit down with a Bigfoot researcher without bringing up the possibility of a hoax. Are there people out and about in gorilla suits or creating footprints in the dirt? So I think a lot of people think that that you know, people dress up as Bigfoot and they kinda they go around and and you know, hope somebody records them and says, I don't think that happens often. I think uh, if you were to get somebody in a Bigfoot suit, it's more so like a stage type thing. I don't think you have too many people just running around in Bigfoot suits. But a lot of the common things that are hoaxed are footprints. Um, those are um, really interesting. You could There's a lot of information you can gain by a footprint. If, you, um, if anybody listening is interested, they look up Dr. Jeff Meldrum. He's the footprint analysis guy. He knows everything about footprints and can tell you if this is a wooden cutout or if this is a human foot or if this is a Sasquatch foot or whatever, uh, just by the distinguishing characteristics of the print, uh, which is really cool. Um, but then, you know, you also have to think, too, um, I was up in Whitehall, New York, not too long ago, and they had a big, uh, big, big foot festival, I guess you would say. And... Um, we were out doing some some bigfooting that night prior to the expedition, and we heard great vocalizations, uh, but turned out they were somebody else. So that's uh, they were up there for the festival too. So you have to you have to understand that even with you know you could get some of the best evidence, but you still like we talked about before, you still have to get that collaborated through the through the through the scientists and the biologists and the and the people that can validate it. 
to make sure that it's not a hoax. So where can people find you? Tell us everything. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we have a brand new spanking website that everybody can go to, shadowofredeye.com. Doesn't get any easier than that. Um, we do have an Etsy you can get to from there. Uh, we sell Bigfoot merchandise. Uh, so cute little Bigfoot stuff, uh, Bigfoot decals and stuff. But uh, our main bread and butters on our YouTube channel, uh, Sussex County Bigfoot. Uh, you could subscribe to us. That would be amazing. We're almost at 2K, which would be so, oh, that'd be so cool. Um, and then we're on Instagram. That's some of our like behind the scenes things and that's shadow of red eye. And then on Facebook is in the shadow of big red eye. I watched some of the YouTube and they are a lot of fun. So I definitely <laughs> think that you got something really interesting going on there. And um, thank you for coming on. And I really appreciate everything you've shared. Oh, well, again, I had, a, I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really good time. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness and happy Halloween. <laughs>